Myra Brooks Welch tells a story of a battered, scarred violin held up for bid by an auctioneer who was hardly who hardly thought it worth its time to auction. And apparently it wasn't for the final bid on the violin was a measly three dollars. And as the auctioneer was about ready to hammer down, he said, going once for $3, going twice for $3, sold at $3, and before he could hit his gavel down, a gray-haired gentleman from the back of the room got up, and he walked up to the front. He took the violin. He dusted it off. He took the bow. He tightened the strings and tuned it. And then he played a melodious song on that violin that melted the hearts of the people. They said it was like angels singing. And when he was done, he handed it back to the auctioneer. The auctioneer, with a new enthusiasm, said, Who will give money for this violin and bow? And at the end, it sold for $3,000. Now, that's often what happens with us in our lives. We see something that looks like it has no value. It's, it's old, it's scratched, it's dusty, until a master takes the instrument, makes it sound like it was intended to sound, producing a pleasant, melodious tune that's captivating to all who hear it. The music brings value to the instrument. And often we see people, kind of like those people at the auction did, they saw the violin, but we look at people and we see that they're beat up, that they're worn out, that they seem to have no value. We see people and wonder if they're going to amount to anything. And sometimes we see ourselves that way. We see ourselves that we have no value to offer because there are people who are more gifted, more talented, better educated, and have a better life resume than what we do to offer anybody or maybe even an organization. And so that's the way we think. And for some reason... I seem to think that that's probably more true in the church than other places. We don't see the value in people. However, when God takes us in as his children, he's the master, he takes us into his hands, and he creates into us this great value and gives us purpose and meaning. We may still think of ourselves of and maybe others that were just kind of small people in the greater scheme of things. We, we don't think we can bring any significance to the or a significant contribution to the kingdom of God. And so we look at our faith community and we go, there are a lot of people more gifted and talented than I am, and I'm just kind of the small guy in the crowd. I don't have a lot to offer. But I am, I'm here to tell you this morning that in God's family and in God's kingdom, there are no small people. Every person plays a significant role, whether you know it or not. And we're going to look at a a few guys this morning out of um, Colossians 4, 7 through 18. And these four guys are probably people you won't recognize their names. I'm going to tell you what they are. They're Tychius. There's Onesimus. There's Epaphras, here's one you might know, Dr. Luke, and then there's Demas. Now, most of us know Dr. Luke. Anybody here, everybody, Dr. Luke, you know him? 
Have you heard of him before? Really? Okay, I'm going to help you out. Matthew, Mark, Luke. The author of the Gospel of Luke is Dr. Luke. He's also the author of the Acts of the Apostles, known as the Book of Acts, right after the four Gospels. And, and he's, he's a medical doctor, and he traveled around with Paul, and he did all kinds of missionary work with Paul. He went on missionary journeys. He was at Paul's side through a lot of different events and planting churches and helping out and doing all kinds of great things. And, and so he has, Paul has his medical doctor that's long helping him out on his needs. Kind of sounds like missions when we go on them, right? A lot of times we take medical doctors with us when we go to a third world country to minister to the needs. Duke was a, or Luke was the medical doctor. But he's also a historian. That's why when you read through the book of Acts, it reads kind of like the history of the beginning of the church, because it is. And because of his, just the way God wired him, he's very detailed in what he writes and who he writes about. There's a lot more detail in the book of Luke than in, say, Mark. There's a lot more going on. And you find out a whole lot more about what was happening because of the way God made Luke. And then when you read through the book of Acts, you're just going like, wow, man, there's crazy stuff going on all the time. And that's because God wired, made Luke and brought him into the kingdom so he would fulfill this ministry where what he did had an impact on way more people than a lot of other guys. We're not all going to be Dr. Luke's for sure. And there's probably a lot of us going like, I don't even want to try to be. But, but God brought these guys together and, and he accomplished great things that we don't necessarily accomplish. He's made huge contributions over the last 2,000 years. I'm not even sure he realized what his contribution to the kingdom of God was going to be. But he's like a superstar. So what about the rest of us? Well, let's look at Tychius. Because he's not that well-known. Anybody here ever heard of Tychius before? Yeah, he's not that well-known. He's only mentioned five times throughout the New Testament. Five times. And, but he was with Luke and with Paul serving to spread the gospel of Christ around the country. Matter of fact, Colossians 4.7 says this. Tychius will tell you about my activities. Okay, right now, under, uh, let me back it up a little bit. Paul is in confinement in Rome under house arrest awaiting trial. It's his second time being arrested in Rome, and now he's sitting waiting to be tried before uh, the uppity-ups like, uh, you know, the governors and all the rest of those people. So he's, he's going to tell the people what's been going on with Paul. He is a beloved brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant in the Lord. Tychus is one of those guys that probably doesn't receive enough um, recognition throughout the Bible or maybe even in our settings. Uh, he he's, he's doesn't have a lot of ink in the Bible spilled about him. We don't know that much really about him. But he, Paul calls him a beloved brother, Paul's beloved brother. He's a faithful minister. He's a fellow servant of the Lord. And he was with Paul in his imprisonment. He entrusted this message, this letter, to be delivered to the church. And, and he's going to tell 
everybody what's going on with Paul in his life as he's imprisoned and how Paul is having such great opportunities to share the gospel with the guards that are looking after him. It's an amazing event of, of what's going on. And so here's Paul. He's, he's in jail, but he's got this these guys that have gathered around him, and they're the ones that run down to the market, to the grocery store. They buy things. They bring it back. They do ministry with Paul. Paul gives them instructions, and they are kind of the hands and the feet of Paul so he can go out. And one of the things I want you to see about our, our young friend here is that he is an encourager. He does a lot of encouragement in the churches. Paul sent Tychius to Crete in order to give Titus, there's a book, a letter Paul wrote to Titus, a chance to come to Rome and visit with Paul. Then Tychius was sent by Paul to Ephesus, to the Ephesians church, where he was bringing relief so that Timothy... Paul's young um, apprentice that worked with him would be able now to go back to Rome and also have a conversation with Paul. And so Tychius is just one of these guys that he's he's kind of a a jack-of-all-trades. You can send him off to a church. He'll take care of the church for six to eight months. He'll preach the word. He'll grow people. He'll disciple people. He'll give them instruction. He'll help them to understand theology and doctrine. He's just this great guy that works with Paul. He goes off to Crete and he goes goes off to Ephesus. And he, he does all this ministry for Paul. There's this unnamed believer alluded to in 2 Corinthians 8. It says, a brother who has often proved to us in many ways that he is zealous. And now even more so because of his great confidence in you. And and all the scholars that I read said, this is a direct um, indication that this was Tychius that they're talking about. And that he had this unbelievable ability to minister wherever he was sent and do the things that he was called to do. Now, we may not know much about this fellow, but what we do know is impressive and praiseworthy. He was a trusted messenger, a faithful preacher, a loyal friend. Paul placed great confidence in him to accomplish important work. He obviously had the ability to minister in a variety of situations, bring encouragements to those he served. He's the one that I think that when Paul wrote about what an elder should be like, to Titus, that he had Tychius in mind. Because here's what he said in Titus, one about elders. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Now, if we go back to Colossians 4, verses 8 through 9, it says that he has sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how he's doing, but that he may encourage your heart. You see, he also had Paul sending a guy, and he's not sending a guy who doesn't have the gift of encouragement. He's sending a guy who knows how to encourage the weak, how to strengthen those who are downtrodden, how to come along those who are growing and say, let's grow a little bit more. Let's do a little bit more for the kingdom of God. What do you need? How can I help you? He was a man of encouragement, much like Barnabas, son of encouragement. That's what 
Barnabas' name means son of encouragement. And he lived up to his name. And so does Tychius. He is, is just like Barnabas. And he comes in and he loves on the people and brings great encouragement to them. Who's the Tychius in our church? There should be more than one. Let's look at the next guy on our list because it's right there in those verses, verses 8 through 9. It says, And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. All right, so an Onesimus. That sounds like a really great name for somebody that's going to have a baby pretty soon. Onesimus, yeah. Hey, Oni, get over here. Well, let me just, you know, Paul, he, he, he mentions him right here. But see, at the same time while he's writing this letter to the Colossians church, he's also writing a letter to one of his dear friends that came to Christ when Paul was preaching in Ephesus. And that guy's name is Philemon. Now, if I would have been putting the Bible together, and by the way, the way the Bible is put together isn't um, divinely inspired. They just put it together this way, and this is the way we know it. I would have put Philemon right behind Colossians because Paul wrote both the letter to the Colossians church and the letter to Philemon at the same time. Antichius and Onesimus were the ones that brought the letters to the church. In Colossus, you see, and 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 what I want to help you understand is a little bit about who Onesimus is, because he's a slave, and his master is Philemon. And what happened is, let me give you a little backstory on this: is is Philemon is a a very wealthy man in Colossus. He has great influence, not just in the city, but with the church, because the church meets in his home. So you have Onesimus, this slave, who has been, um, ever since Philemon has come to Christ, has been hearing the message and the story about Jesus and the grace that God brings and the transformation out of that grace into people's lives and how they're saved and they have this hope of glory in Christ that's waiting for them. So Onesimus is hearing this all the time in the church. He's, he's there cleaning. He's participating. Maybe he's told he's going to come and go to church because he is a slave and his master can tell him exactly what he's going to do. And so Onesimus isn't foreign to who Jesus is. He isn't foreign to the gospel. But one day, Onesimus just kind of makes the decision, you know what? I am sick and tired of being a slave. I hate my life. I hate where I live. Colossus is a one-horse town, and I want to get out of here. And, and so because Philemon was a trusting man who was a Christ follower, I believe Onesimus took advantage of him. Snuck into Philemon's house, went into the bedroom, lifted up the mattress, took ten dollars or $20,000, put it in his pocket, beat feet down to the, the G&C, caught a ship, went across the sea, went to Rome. It's kind of like nowadays. When somebody wants to get lost, they don't go and hang out up at Dubois because you know everyone there. Everybody knows everyone, and everybody knows everyone's business. And so if you really want to get lost, what do you do? You head off to the big city. 
because you just want to blend in. You just want to become another face in the city. And so that's what Onesimus is doing. He's heading off to Rome because he wants to get away and he wants to just blend in. He, he, he's sure there's nobody in Rome that would know him. It's a large metropolitan city. And, and so he can just go there and just blend in and disappear and live his life happily ever after. By the way, Onesimus knew about Paul. And, and, and what he didn't know is when he was headed right to Rome to run away and get away, he was running right to Paul because Paul was in prison. What he also didn't know is that one of the guys from his city, Colossus, also from his church or his master's church, was also in Rome at that time. And his name is Epaphras. Because Epaphras was like looking at the church and things were going on around in, in Colossus where there was this heresy that was starting to creep into the church. And so, so Epaphras is going like, this is over my head. I need to go and see Paul because Paul's going to give me some instruction and help me to deal with this issue that's going on in the church. And so he runs off to Rome to hang out with Paul and go like, here's what's going on. Here's the things people are saying. They're saying that Jesus is good, but he's not good enough. They're saying you have to do all these other crazy nonsense kind of things in order to really be in the kingdom of God and to really enter into God's presence. And so Paul's going like, okay, we're going to deal with this. And so I believe it was divine appointment, God's divine intervention to where Onesimus is walking through the market one day and he's walking down there and all of a sudden some guy yells out his name. Hey, Onesimus, is that you? Philemon let you come on into the big city for a while? What's the deal? You here on a business trip for your master? Oh, shoot. It's Epaphras. So Epaphras says, hey, you hungry? We're cooking a little lamb up at, at the, uh, Paul's apartment today. So why don't you come on up and have a meal? You know you know who Paul is, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, I know who Paul is. I've never met him. Well, great, come on. Let me introduce you to Paul. And so Onesimus, thinking he's running away from all of his troubles, runs right smack dab into God. Epaphras finds him, introduces him to Paul. Paul explains the beauty of the gospel of Christ, the freedom we have in Jesus, how he takes all of the junk of our life and gives us freedom. And now Onesimus, the slave, is thinking, I've got some stuff to do. And so Paul's busy writing these letters. And so Onesimus is now hanging out with all the rest of the boys at Paul's apartment. They're, you know, they're having a great time hanging out together. And, and so you know, Paul says back to Philemon, because he wrote this letter at the same time, Onesimus shows up and he's going like, oh, I better talk to Philemon about Onesimus because I know Onesimus was a pain in the neck to Philemon. Onesimus was one of those guys that you would rather sock him in the mouth than have to tell him twice what to do. He was just not a good employee. And so if you look, in, and by the way, you're going to see it says Philemon, Philemon, 17, there's only one chapter in there, so you don't have to put chapter 1 or chapter 2. It's just one chapter. So Philemon, verse 17 says this, Paul says this to, to Philemon. He says, so if you consider me your partner, receive him, that's Onesimus, as you would receive me. Because you see, Phi, um, Onesimus is in deep kimchi right now. 
He's in the deep stuff, deep weeds. He's in big trouble. Because if you're a runaway slave, just being a runaway slave, a master had a right and he could have crucified him. Philemon could have killed Onesimus for running away. But the fact that he also embezzled and stole money from Philemon, like the guy's going to get tortured before he's killed. And that's the thought that runs through the mind. So he's thinking, do I really want to go back to Colossus and bump into and see my master because he's still his master, Philemon. And so Paul's on his behalf saying to Philemon, hey, listen, this slave is coming back to you. Receive him as you would receive me. In other words, don't be harsh with him. Don't beat him up. Don't put him in shackles. Don't make his life miserable. Act as though he's me. And so what happens is that in verses 11 and 10 and 11 of Philemon, it says, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, that spiritual child. Just like Timothy was a spiritual child to Paul, so is Onesimus now, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Read this. Look at this carefully. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now in he is indeed useful to me. So there's two things we want to notice out of this little thing right here. Is first of all that, that Paul is identifying Onesimus as a spiritual son. He's been teaching him. He's been discipling him. He's been mentoring him. He's been helping him to grow while he's been in Paul's care in Rome. So that's the first thing that we have to kind of take a look at is he is being discipled and he's being taught, which means that the word of God is transforming Onesimus from being this pain in the neck slave to becoming someone that is great. And we see that because he says, formerly he was useless to you, but now indeed he is useful to you. Now, that is something that if you just read that, you don't get it. Paul has a sense of humor. He's got a play on words here because today, you know, we name our kid Bob. And that's because he floats around in the water and he does this, right? No, it's because his full name is Robert. And, and so names have significant value. I mean, we, we, nobody's going to name their kid Onesimus or Demas for Pete's sakes. I mean, just like nobody named their kid Arvid. Who would do that? Oh, yeah, my parents did. Thanks for getting me shoved in the locker in junior high because of my middle name. Everybody knew it. But in Paul's time, a name carried significant value. It it told you who this person was. Just like I told you, Barnabas means son of encouragement. Onesimus means profitable or useful. Oh, no. So Onesimus, while he's working in, in Philemon's house, is anything but useful. He's a pain in the neck. He doesn't do what he's supposed to do. He is, he is not living up to his name. He's useless. Paul knew that because that's what he says right here. He says, formerly he was useless to you. And now he plays on his name, right? He says, now he's really living up to Onesimus, useful. Not only to me, but he's going to live up that to you and to the church as well. And so what happens is Tychius and Onesimus take the letters to the church and to Philemon and they show up and Onesimus 
is coming in because everybody in the church knows him because he met, they all met in Philemon's house and they're finally, everybody's going, hey, where's Onesimus, Philemon? He ran off and he stole a bunch of my money. So now you've got this guy who's run off and he's embezzled money, maybe even from the church, and he's coming back to the church. Do you think he's going to get a warm reception? No. So Tychius has been given the the duty by Paul to bring Onesimus to the church and to his master as a faithful fellow follower of Christ. Say that three times real fast. Faithful fellow follower. He's a brother in the Lord. And so the church needs to accept him as though he is a Christ follower and loves Jesus just the same as they do. And so should Philemon. So Onesimus, who was once useless, like a violin, has now become useful in the master's hands. Let's move on to our next guy. We've already talked a little bit about him, Epaphras. And Epaphras and Philemon made a trip to Ephesus where, they, where Paul was planting his church, his church in Ephesus. They heard the gospel. They responded to it. They became Christ followers. And so Epaphras and Philemon went back to their city, to their town, and they started a church on Paul's behalf. See, that's what Paul does is he trains up leaders and says, go plant a church in Colossus. And so Epaphras and Philemon... Go like, let's tag team this together. And so they go in, and Epaphras does the teaching and the training and all the rest of that. And Philemon is kind of the the money behind the whole thing. And so it's all working together, and it's a great combination. So you have Epaphras, who went, as I said earlier, to Rome to meet with Paul because he wanted to let him know what was going on in the Colossians church, That, that these people had infiltrated into the church and were teaching a different gospel other than Jesus. And and so Epaphras is one of these great guys because he's also kind of like Tychius. Not really well known, but has done a lot of things for the kingdom of God in magnificent ways that goes unnoticed by just about everyone. Paul notices and he makes comment of him. Because get this. Tychius, Epaphras, Onesimus, People have been reading their names for the last 2,000 years. Two things will never disappear. The souls of men and the word of God. Those guys are etched into God's word for eternity because they played significant roles for the kingdom of God. George Simon, when his grandkids die or his great-grandkids pass away, nobody's going to know what he did for the kingdom of God except God. But he made a significant impact on the kingdom of God. And so we have Epaphras. It says in verses 12 through 13, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in prayers, and that you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Heropolis. Here's a guy that we know very little bit about. 
But yet it, Paul's telling us that this guy is one of those, those prayer giants because he does all the heavy lifting and all the hard work on behalf of church people all across um, Asia Minor praying for the churches, praying for the people in the churches, that they would come and be mature in Christ so that the kingdom of God would spread even further and that the churches would grow deeper. He has spent a lot of time on his knees struggling and praying and working through and and, and really having to fight through for the people of God that they would become mature, that they would understand who they are in Christ Jesus and then live that way. And I'm telling you, Our churches need to have guys like this, women like this, who are going to come together and who are going to say it is the hardest ministry in the church to pray. But we've got to do it. We've got to get on our knees before God. We've got to labor in secret. We've got to do this so that the saints would be perfect and complete in their standing. So that so that everything that God is wanting to do, he will do as he pleases through people who are willing to hear what God has to say and then move in the direction that God is leading them and see the fruit of their labor. It starts with guys like Epaphras who were prayer giants, who, who strove earnestly in prayers for their churches, who wrestled in prayer, who testified to the perseverance of praying. And he toiled on behalf of the saints. Are you an Epaphras? Someone who's going like, you know what? Praying is hard work. It, It takes a lot of concentration in your mind. I'm lisdexic. I'm dyslexic. I'm ADHD. I'm probably every one of those letters you've got. You talk about having a hard time concentrating. I mean, after 15 minutes of working on a sermon on Tuesday morning, I'm like, wow, man, I've really got a lot done. I need to go have coffee and a cinnamon roll. I've earned it. I've worked 15 minutes. And then I walk right up to that door to go out to my truck, and I can hear my wife's voice in the back of my head. Do you really need another cinnamon roll? (laughs) So I turn around, I come back in, and I sit back down, and I struggle through that. And I'm telling you that you don't have to have some kind of learning disability to struggle in prayer. It is a difficult task. That's why we don't do so much of it. It's because it's hard work. We, we start to pray. And, and you, you all know what I'm talking about. You know when you, when you start to just enter into that prayer time, you're praying to Jesus, and then all of a sudden you go like, I should be fertilizing the lawn right now because I think it's a good time to do that. Oh, oh, and then you come back and you start praying, and you pray for your Aunt Mary, and then you go like, hey, I wonder how Cousin Bob's doing. I heard he was moving. Oh, and then you come back and then you start to pray for your kids. I mean, you know what I'm talking, right? Is there an amen on that or what? Yeah, it's hard work. It takes concentration. 
And you've got a guy like Epaphras who's been praying for these churches, who's been struggling and wrestling. It's the reality of what happens in the spirit. It's not that you just, you sweat, you work through it, you have to do it. And we need guys like that in our church. We need women who are just going to get on their knees and they're going to spend hours. But I'm going to tell you, that that kind of ministry, you don't just start off on. It's like, okay, so... I got this new exercise machine in my house that I bought. And it's, it, it's made by Bowflex. And this is uh, infomercial maybe, okay? Bowflex, the Flex, Max 5 trainer. And so I've got that thing because, you know, um, my doctor said that my triglycerides are a little bit high. My cholesterol's a little bit high. And he just says, you know, just get a little bit of exercise. And my wife says that my shirts are are pulling at the buttons and, you know, I look in the mirror and I go, they got to change my name to Pillsbury Doughboy or something. I don't know. So I bought this machine and, and, you know, I've looked at it and I read everything and I set it up and I got it all ready to go and I'm just thinking this is going to be the greatest thing because I'm going to get on that thing and I'm just going to start to burn through the fat and I'm just going to be a lean, mean fighting machine. Yeah, because they say a 14-minute workout. Well, who can't work out for 14 minutes? I can't. (laughs) I got on that thing in three and a half minutes. My lungs were screaming at me, and my legs were like wet noodles. I had to sit down on the bed and... (gasps) And Lorinda walks by the door. She goes, oh, you did your workout. How long did you go for? Thirty minutes. Three. All right. So the bottom line is I have to work my way up to the fourteen minute mark. Wow. I'm at eight minutes and I'm dying. And that's the same thing about prayer. You just don't walk into your prayer closet and go like, I am going to pray for one hour. You get down on your knees and you have prayed through everything. You have labored at it. And you get up and you go like, man, that was so long, three minutes. (laughs) It's a work of labor, but it's also a work of love. And God calls us to be in those places. He calls us to be fellow servants, a servant of other people, leadership. This is God. This is Jesus' leadership model right here. Jesus, you know, I love Epaphras and Tychius because they, they heard about Jesus. They understood who Jesus was, how Jesus came to this earth, what he did, because Jesus came as a servant leader. He came not to be served, but to serve. And these guys are going, we're going to... Jesus modeled this leadership for us. We're going to do that. We're going to serve Paul. We're going to serve the churches. We're going to serve other Christians. We're going to serve unchurched people. It's the model Christ laid out for us. Servant leadership. And and we're faithful to the ministry that God's given to us. So these guys are really important to us. The last guy we're going to look at is Demas. We really don't much know much about Demas because, you know, like Tychius was mentioned five times. Epaphras, I, I didn't really look it up, but Demas 
Three times he has his name in scriptures. Here in Colossians 4.14, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Not a lot there. Don't know much. In Philippians 24, he's named as a fellow co-worker of Paul's. Demas, the fellow co-worker of Paul. And then when you go to 2 Timothy, because this is after these two letters have been written, 2 Timothy is written, Paul wrote the letter to, his second letter to Timothy, and he's giving him some encouragement and other things. But Timothy knows Demas, and he knows Epaphras, and he knows Philemon. He knows all these other guys. Timothy knows them because he was with Paul when Paul was doing missionary work around those areas. And so he knows Demas, and that Demas has been hanging around with Paul and helping Paul out. And in 2 Timothy 4.10, here's what Paul says. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. All of a sudden, Demas, who is, uh, you know, says hi, is helping Paul out. He's been around. He's been doing some stuff. And all of a sudden, Paul's going like, that Demas, he couldn't take it anymore. He loved the world way too much. He loved the things of this world. And he did not want to hang around and continue on with the things that God was doing. And it was too much for him because he had his eyes set on the world. And we're told, we're not told whether his love was the world of the world was centered on any one thing. We're only told that he loved it and that the love for the world caused him what it caused him to do. Christ's followers are commanded not to love the world. Sadly, though, many today are like Demas and they set their affections on it and its allurements with no regard of what the cost is going to be to them. We often speak of costly love affairs, whether they're fictional or real, Because those affairs causes homes to be broken. Children suffer. Reputations are ruined. Wealth is sacrificed. And no one has ever been costlier than the love affair Demas and others like them have had with the world. Because what it does is it costs your soul. And and I'm not saying that Demas isn't a Christ follower. But I do know this, that if you are not constantly being fed by the word, you're, you're either growing or you're dying. And when you're in love with the world and you're walking in the world and you're doing all the worldly things for whatever reason to make a a bigger bank account, to make yourself feel better, to, to look important to other people. When you do all that stuff, your soul starts to wither. It starts to dry up. It's costly to be in love with the world. You lose the fellowship with God. We have no hope. We We don't see God as our hope anymore. And continual fellowship with God requires walking with Him in accordance with His will. Friendship with the world, James says, makes us enemies with God. In 1 John 2, it states that anyone who loves the world does not have the love of the Father in him. You see what it does? When when your affections go somewhere other than to God, you all of a sudden have drawn the line in the sand and you say, I'm not that interested in the things of God anymore. I'm interested in this. And God says, you want that? I'm going to give you what you're asking for. And you know the funny thing is, is that sometimes we need to be aware of what we're really asking for. 
Because what we're asking for can absolutely destroy us. This morning we've looked at these five guys. I don't know as I've been explaining to you who they are and what they've done, if any of those you've, you've connected to any one of those five guys. I certainly hope it hasn't been Demas, all right? But maybe you, maybe you connect with Tychius and with Epaphras. And you're saying like, you know what? I know that God's called me to do something for him. The thing about these two fellows is we only get a little bit of information, only a little bit of ink was spilled on them. But yet their contribution to the kingdom of God was enormous. It's far more reaching than what we'll ever know until we step into glory and we get to ask Jesus himself, man, can you tell me about those two guys? Man, they are my heroes because I, I relate to them. They just do their work. They just do it not for any recognition, not for any other purpose, except because they love Jesus and they did some amazing things. Can you tell me what's the, what are the effects of Demas and Tychius or of Epaphras and Tychius? Who's all here because of them? And it will just be amazing to see what happens. Here's what I'm telling you. You are like them. There's not going to be a lot of ink spilled about your life or my life. We're not going to make the, the church history books. But that's not what matters. What really matters is how does what I'm doing now make a contribution to eternity for the lives of men, women, and children that I come in contact with and I get to be Epaphras. I get to be Tychius to them. Maybe you're Onesimus. Maybe you've been running away from your master, Jesus. And you're running away, trying to get away from all these different things. And when you think you're running right away from God, you run right into him. And maybe this morning you ran smack dab into God. And you're going, now what am I going to do? Well, I'm going to tell you that he will take your brokenness of your life. He will take you because he is the master. And when you are in the master's hands, you are an instrument and he will make beautiful music out of your life. One that sings into the hearts and lives of other people. And because of what God does in you, his transforming grace, you will be the musical instrument that will reach some of those that others can't reach. You have a story. God will use your story. He will grow you to be the man or woman he wants you to be. Don't be like Demas, just hanging around God's people till you find something better to do. Commit to it. Settle in with it. Let God work on you. Let him grow you to be that instrument you were meant to be. Because here's what I know. God's faithful. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you that your love for us is far greater than what we'll ever know. 
And the things that you have for us to do, we feel insignificant. We feel we don't bring a lot to the table. We feel like we're not going to make a contribution. But yet in all of this, you have laid out for us in the New Testament, all these people and in the Old Testament, people that we don't know very much about, but yet they did significant things for your kingdom. And you're saying to us today, you may not feel significant, but you are very influential and significant for my kingdom. So I pray that our hearts would just be attuned to you and just say, use me, make music through me for your kingdom and for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' great name. Amen.